This talk was given at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts on December 9, 1977. The speaker is Jack Cornfield. The topic, Wisdom, Power, and Knowledge. And knowledge and how to come by it. There's a story told of Mullah Nasruddin, again, the Sufi teaching figure, fool, wise man, where at one point the villagers who lived near him, hearing that he was a holy man of some nature or other, invited him to their mosque to come and teach. So he came on Friday and got up in front of the people and he said, standing there, Oh people, do you know what I'm going to say? And they all answered, no, we do not. And he said, well, then you're too dumb to start with, <clears throat> too stupid to make a start on. And he got down and he went home. <clears throat> Somewhat chagrined, they sent a deputation to his house and invited him again to preach at another Friday, hoping to do a little better the next time. This time he got up and he started the same way. Oh, people, do you know what I'm going to say? And they replied, yes, we do. And he said, fine, then there's no need to detain you any further. <laughs> he went home. <laughs> further chagrin, they invited him for a third Friday in succession to come and speak with them. He got up this time, they were ready. <clears throat> he started in the same way. Oh, people, do you know what I'm going to say? And they answered, some of us do, and some of us do not. <laughs> to which he replied, fine, then let those of you who do tell those of you who do not. <laughs> and he got down and went on. <coughs> there are all different kinds of understanding, of knowledge, that we can come by in the world. <clears throat> There's scientific knowledge, knowledge of chemistry, of molecular chemistry, of the structures of different substances, be they in biological substances or, or the physical elements, and how they're put together and how they combine in different patterns, in different ways, in reactions. Knowledge of physics and the laws of thermodynamics and heat and of flow and of gravity and of the relationship of, of different kind of energy forces and objects to one another, laws of motion, all those kind of things from this nuclear physics, the knowledge and the understanding of atoms and atomic particles to astrophysics and the movement of stars and galaxies, knowledge of philosophy, enormous, vast, every kind of conception that man has come in different cultures and different times to why he's here and how he relates to one another and what the <coughs> purpose of things are and what's the meaning of truth and knowledge of psychology 
can study all different kinds of knowledge in psychology. Social psychology and the relationship of people and developmental psychology and perceptive and cognitive psychology and the ways that perception works and psychophysiology, the relationship of the body and mind together and knowledge of sociology and different cultures and societies and anthropology, different ways they bring up children, <laughs> just a vast amount of things that we can know about, you know? Every day, this country, I don't know how many thousand newspapers are printed, many pages each filled with news stories and, and words about describing something or other. And, and every year, the Library of Congress adds something like, it said, something like five million new volumes to its collection that somebody somewhere has written about something. Fantastic every subject. And just look at your own speech and see how the words pour out to describe your experience or things that are happening around you, sometimes well, sometimes not, on and on and on and on. It's as though it radiates out from a center. And the farther you look in any direction, in physics or chemistry or psychology or religion, the more you look, the vaster it gets, that which you can describe. No end to it. anything, you know. You could use this example before. You could write 10 million words about this watch. You could talk about the molecular and chemical structure of the crystal or of the refining and smelting techniques of getting the ore and how that developed from the times of first, first um, uh, tin and bronze and copper age to iron age and more sophisticated smelting. You could talk about um, the physics involved in the movement of the different parts inside. You could describe the nature of man's conception of time in different societies and how the evolution of clocks and watches and timepieces developed. You could write, I won't continue, but there's no end you know, to how much you can describe even any one simple thing. Spiritual knowledge is equally vast. Knowledge, whether you take it to be real or mythopoetic, whatever. Knowledge of different planes of existence. In the Buddhist tradition, some of them talk about 16 realms of heaven and all these different kinds of hells and knowledge of astral planes and astral beings and of heavens, of Brahma worlds. Knowledge of planets and astrology and the effect of stars and the moon and different configurations of celestial bodies on on any particular time period or groups of people, transit astrology, all kinds of astrology. Knowledge of yoga, of laya yoga and jnana yoga and raja yoga and hatha yoga and kundalini yoga and 20 other kinds of yoga that are done, shabda yoga and, and nad yoga, no, yoga of sounds, yoga of the kundalini, so many kinds knowledge of diets and how different kinds of diets and foods affect you and different herbs, knowledge of uh, colors, different colored lights affecting you and um, knowledge of karma and the different kind of interactions, knowledge of the tarot and different kinds of archetypes and how they represent spiritual evolution and the chakras. Go into any really good spiritual bookstore and look, especially the big ones, and they're just 
filled, packed with thousands of volumes of spiritual knowledge that you can learn about. <laughs> the Buddhist tradition acknowledges the vastness of knowledge, of the realms of form of time and space and thought, talks about the mind from the very smallest kind of time, from what's called a mind moment. It's said that there are 17 trillion mind moments in the wink of an eye. You know, in the Abhidhamma philosophy, psychology is based on an analysis of what happens in a particular sequence of a certain number of these mind moments at different times, all the way up to very, very vast ranges of understanding and description coming from basically the Buddhist, Hindu, Brahmanic, Indian tradition of many thousand years, talking about world cycles, tens of thousands of world systems the size of galaxies which appear and disappear, arise and vanish, the expansion and contraction of the universe over, over hundreds of thousands of Mahakalpas. <coughs> Talks about the coming to be of a Buddha. Says that for a being to become a Buddha, which is that not only fully enlightened, but perfection of enlightenment in terms of the, the perfection of the qualities of virtue and concentration and so forth that we've talked about, that a bodhisattva, someone who undertakes the path to become a fully self-enlightened Buddha, does so over a period of four immensities and 100,000 Mahakalpas. And one, to give you a sense of the duration of time that's talked about, one Mahakalpa is described, if you imagine a mountain that's a yojana high and a yojana wide and a yojana long. And a yojana is the distance that an ox cart can go in a day, so 10 miles or so. Big mountain, twice as high as Everest. And every, it's described, every hundred years a bird comes along with a silk scarf in its beak and it drags it along the edge of the mountain, wearing it away. <laughs> when that mountain is worn down, that's one Mahakalpa. <laughs> hundred thousand. Now, and somewhere in Burma there's a list of the past 37 Buddhas, supposedly, that came and passed different world systems. Enormous spiritual knowledge, vast. <coughs> powers. Let's talk about powers and power of different sorts. Go back to science. Again, <coughs> scientific powers. All different kinds of energy and power that we can work with in the physical universe in which we live. Lasers, Electric power, electromagnetic, all the whole spectrum of electromagnetic things, which includes ultraviolet and x-rays and visible radiation, and fire, combustion, oxidation, chemical kinds of reactions, gravity, nuclear power, and all each year in our search to control our environment and change relation to things, we discover new sources of power to tap into, new kinds of energy, new ways to work with it thermonuclear power of different kinds, the power of the sun. Vast, endless, the more that you look and discover, the more kinds of energy that you can learn to tap into and control and use. Spiritual powers, equally enormous, vast, it's said. 
telepathy, the ability to read minds, to know things at a distance. The powers have been written down not just in India or among Hindus or Buddhists, but in many, many great traditions. The powers of the divine eye and the divine ear to know things that have happened in the past and future and see the rising and vanishing of the succession of births of beings. The powers of working with the elements of making the body multifold or making water so you can walk on it or things like that. I don't know. Some of these I don't know about at all, although they've been told to be by teachers and some of them I have a pretty good sense of. But if you look in the spiritual traditions and literature all around the world, again, the kind of things that you can do with your mind when it becomes really concentrated and directed are, are fantastic and enormous. And when your practice, when my practice came to the, the deepest that it has been for me, I was quite overwhelmed by the levels of ways of perceiving things and the power of mind that I had no inkling existed. And it was just a little taste, just a very beginning. Enormous kinds of powers in the spiritual realm as much as in the scientific. Endless. No end to that which can be cultivated and worked with. The Buddha at one point said there were four things, endless knowledge, endless power. Four things, however, that he talked about is the four unknowables. That if you thought about them too much, they would drive you mad. And the first of these is the range of the mind of a Buddha said the power, the ability to know things, the understanding of the mind of a Buddha is so extraordinary, so vast, that there's no way that you can comprehend it without being that. Beyond unknowable. The second is the range of jhana. Again, the possibilities, jhana being that word in Sanskrit, Pali, that corresponds to the cultivation of the highest levels of concentration and samadhi. What can be done with the mind, the range and the realms and the powers that come from that? Unknowable, so vast, unthinkable. The third of these is karma. Not that you can't understand the law of cause and effect in your own life and see it in your practice, but to understand fully karma, to say, what are all the karmic circumstances that bring all of us together in this room at this moment? can think of how you heard about the retreat or how you got interested in spiritual practice or you know what the circumstances was with the post office of getting your forwarding address so you got the brochure and how you happened to be born to those parents and in this country and the complex interweavings that make any particular moment of an event happen how can you know vast and the last of the unthinkables the unknowables is the first beginning of things. Where did it all begin? What's the very first beginning of it? I remember, and I've told this story, and I've told this talk many times. <laughs> anyway, I remember being at Ajahn Chah's monastery in the forest in the evening after a Dharma talk, being together with some monks, walking back to my cottage, which was some ways away from the main hall, several other monks who'd been at the talk, and we s <coughs> sat down in a clearing, kind of squatted down, to talk about whatever was going on there, I don't remember. 
while we were sitting there, um, I looked up in the sky and saw the Big Dipper, which at that time was the only constellation I could recognize. I've learned another one since. Um, and right in the middle of the Big Dipper was a bright star, right like in the middle of the bowl, the pot of it. And I looked and I said, gee, that was never there before. No, this meditation is pretty strange. <laughs> and as I looked more closely, I saw that it was moving very slowly across the sky. And in fact, I immediately realized it was one of the echo satellites that we put up in the 60s to be reflector satellites. It was quite bright. And so I nudged the people or, who were sitting with me and I said, hey, well, look at that. And they said, oh, a nun benerai. I said, nun riakwa satellite. They said, satellite? What's a satellite? These three monks, one of us was an older monk. He was the abbot of a nearby temple and a disciple of Ajahn Chah. Very, very wise, really beautiful man. The other two were younger monks, none of whom had more than a fourth grade education. Well, now how can I explain this? So I searched around and found a rock and I picked it up and I had my flashlight to go back on this path to my cottage and I turned it on and I did that elementary school demonstration of how the sun is here and the earth turns around like this and they looked it and then I explained about rockets and 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 the cause and effect of things being pushed out one way so the rocket moves the other and it going around the earth and being a satellite and they listened very patiently. <laughs> <laughs> and they asked questions like, if it's round, how come you don't fall off the bottom? And why does it look flat, the earth, that is? And uh, how come we don't feel it moving if it's turning like that? You know, and beside, you can see the sun goes down and comes up. And all of the quite reasonable standard questions that one would ask about such a thing. Mm, the younger monks might have believed me somewhat, having some kind of awe of American technology. The older monk, I don't think he actually <laughs> believed me at all. But what was interesting was that he was a very, very special person, a really beautiful man. He was very wise. He was not only the abbot of a temple, but quite well known. And many, many people would go to visit him, to pay their respects, to take teachings from him, and to bring their problems, their problems of their life, of their relationships, of whatever <coughs> it was. And he was really helpful because he was so wise. He could see through their problems. He could give them advice. He could help them in many ways. An extraordinarily wise man, very beautiful. And yet he didn't know <coughs> that the earth was round. The most simple, basic thing that's part of our culture and our understanding commonly, the earth is round. He didn't know it. At one point the Buddha was sitting out in the forest with a group of monks and he reached down and he picked up a handful of leaves and he said, Which is more, O oh monks, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in <coughs> all the forests of India? He asked easy questions sometimes. <laughs> and they said, why? The leaves in all the forests of India, sir. And he said, good, okay. He said, just so <clears throat> is that which I have taught you compared to that which can be known by the mind of a Buddha. 
said, and yet that which I have taught you, this handful of leaves, <clears throat> is all that you need to know to completely discover for yourself the cause of happiness, the cause of suffering, the nature of birth and death, completely and totally. Only this handful of leaves. <clears throat> what was that handful of leaves, that simple thing that he taught? What it was, was, is called the middle path, the path of balance. Many ways it, it functions. In his own practice, it was learning from the many years of ascetic practice and self-mortification that that wasn't the way to understanding, nor was indulgence in simply following desires, but finding that balance of taking care of oneself, not indulging, and yet not trying to force and through ascetic practices to come to an understanding, the balance of clear seeing. The middle path means the balance of mind, of not attachment. I went <coughs> to Ajahn Chah one day, early in my stay there, I was quite upset and thinking of leaving, I think because my practice was going well actually, although I didn't know it. Um, but I had judgments about people around the monastery and I was having a hard time and pain in my mind and sitting and whatever, you know. It. And um, I went to him <coughs> and I was complaining, telling him I was thinking of leaving and of course in that kind of <coughs> mind state, I began also to criticize him. And I said, you know, even you, you're not consistent. Sometimes you say one thing, sometimes you say another thing. You, you know, you're, you're so enlightened, how come you don't, you know, how come you're not honest? Which is, takes a lot of chutzpah. Westerners can get away with it. And he just laughed. He thought that was pretty funny that I should ask him. And he said, you know, teaching for me is like this. He said, it's like there's a road that I know very well been down and traveled, and it's dark, and I look down the road, and I see someone I know going down the road, and they're just about to fall off into this ditch on the right-hand side, or get lost on some little side track. So I yell down, hey, go left. I said, sometimes I look down, and somebody I know walking down the same road, I know it well, and they're just about to fall off into the ditch on the left-hand side, or get lost in some little side path that goes off to the left. And I look down, and I yell, hey, Go right. He said, that's all I do when I teach. Only to find where someone is caught, where someone is off balance, where someone is attached, and say, let go of that too. Come back to that balance. The middle path, the handful of leaves. You know, not to cling to anything. Joseph, in his talk on the warrior, talked about Don Juan, the teachings, Carlos Castaneda. Many, many ways to express this handful of leaves. The man of knowledge has only his impeccability, only just to be there, in balance, in the moment. You know, erasing personal history, Don Juan talked about, letting go of the past and future, keeping death over your left shoulder, another way to come back just to the moment, to that balance. One point in the last volume of Tales of Power, Don Juan says, all of your training, talked about all the things he put Carlos through, was to learn to get you to stop the internal dialogue. Doesn't mean that it stops, but to stop being caught up in it and identified with it and taking those thoughts and concepts to be the reality. 
very skillful, many, many ways of teaching. No. Don Juan sent Carlos out on the desert. He could have said, okay, Carlos, today I want you to go out, spend a couple of days in the desert, find a little path, maybe 10 or 15 steps long, do walking meditation, lifting, moving, placing, and then alternately sit, rising, falling, rising, falling, just to make mental notes. Carlos would have gone out to the desert, Don Juan would have stayed home, Carlos would have gone to sleep. It's boring, you know, nothing to do, rising, falling. <laughs> Instead, very skillful teacher said, Carlos, today I'm going to take you out to the desert to meet the ally. And you don't know which form the ally will come in. You might hear the ally, you might see the ally. You might not see the ally. <laughs> Carlos was terrified. Carlos went out to the desert and he was so aware and so mindful. Okay. Many different skillful means to get people to wake up. The same game. <laughs> Still, <coughs> understanding that the wisdom and the compassion of that old monk had nothing to do with his knowledge of the world's roundness or any of those other things. Still, he might be intrigued. He might think, well, gee, these powers sound kind of interesting. It would be nice to walk on water, at least be able to read somebody's mind or something like that. Or knowledge, gee, all these things to learn about. And perhaps by comparison, your two weeks of practice here, longer, I'm just kind of boring, rising, falling, thinking, thinking, judging, rising, falling, lifting, placing, whatever. Pretty boring, all these interesting things. One point, Buddha asked his monks again, he said, which do you think is greater, O monks? The height of the great Mount Vipula, some mythical mountain, or the pile of bones that if stacked up from all of your incarnations would make. said, greater, O monks, is that pile from all of the bones of your past incarnations. He said, which do you think is greater, the waters in the four great oceans or the tears that you've shed on this long way because of the separation from and the death of your parents and your children, and your husbands, and your wives, and your loved ones, which is inevitable in each life, each time. It's a greater, O oh monks, is the water from the tears that you shed, even in the waters in the four great oceans. You know, how much more do you want? Because as long as you want more, you can have it. You get all you want. Even more sometimes. <laughs> really? Think about it. The last three fetters to be cut, the last three things that bind us to this wheel of becoming again and again, of, of attachments of, of those forces which keep us going through this before final enlightenment. Very interesting. It'll be a while, don't worry about it. Very interesting nevertheless are the fetters, one, of pride and conceit, one of, and that's really a fetter of discrimination, of comparing, okay? One of restlessness, and restlessness, interestingly enough, includes curiosity. 
wanting to know. That's another kind of desire. And then finally, the last veils of ignorance, of any illusion of anyone being there, of any separation of oneself from the rest of this process that is the universe. Giving others the freedom to be stupid is one of the hardest steps in spiritual practice. Giving oneself the freedom to be stupid, one of the hardest steps in spiritual practice. From the lazy man's guide to enlightenment. You know, the fetter of pride and conceit and comparison. Really, you can see how it binds you into thinking who you are and who they are, and you're smarter or less smart or whatever. Curiosity. Wanting to know. Compared to peace, compared to stillness, anything else is dukkha. You know? Even the most extraordinary powers, even the most exalted states of mind, any kind of knowledge or anything you could learn about, you know, any kind of thing that you relate to out of desire, out of holding on, attachment of wanting to get, wanting to know, wanting to become. Painful, because there's always that grasping and that off-balanceness, that desire, that, that fire. It moves the mind, it makes you want, based on attachment. What good is that, you know? Look clearly. Nati Santi Parang Sukang, repeated often in the sutras, there's no higher happiness than peace. We look for happiness, we all want happiness. You're not going to find it. There's no, I mean, there's an endless amount of spiritual knowledge and scientific knowledge and powers of every sort. No kind of grasping, no wanting to become, wanting to learn, wanting to know, to understand. None of that's it. It still involves you in looking out there and grasping. This is from Ramana Maharshi again, a very great Indian saint. Someone asked him one day, can a yogi know his or her past lives? He says, do you know the present life that you wish to know the past? Find the present and the rest will follow. Even with your l present limited knowledge, you suffer much. Why should you burden yourself with more knowledge? Is it so as to suffer more? The real happiness that comes from practice comes from liberation of letting go, from understanding about that handful of leaves, about what allowed that old monk to be wise without knowing the world was round. It's that understanding that here we are, just in this moment. But there's nothing outside of this moment. And that creating ideas and self-images and things you're going to get and become, all just creates problems for you. I want to be this way. I don't like the way I am. I want my house, my relationship, my job, my family, my... to be different. I want to get this. What a drag. <laughs> look at it. You know, look at that force in your mind. Different ways to understand this perfect balance. Joseph told the story of the old Hasid walking across the town square. You know, where are you going? Only don't know. You don't know. Don't know mind is one expression of it. 
Maybe I'll tell you another Hasid story that's kind of related peripherally. It's an excuse to tell it anyway. <laughs> Again, an old, uh, not quite so old Hasidic Rebbe teaching. His students come up to him one day and they say, Rebbe, tell us, what is the meaning of life? Silent students around him. He said, life, life is like a barrel. And they all look at each other. Life is like a barrel. And then he goes away. Life is like a barrel. Does that mean it's empty? Or does that mean that it's um, constructed in some way? All kinds of theories grew out of his statement, life is like a barrel. And his disciples worked with it and thought about it almost as their koan for a long time. Finally, the Rebbe gets very old and he's about to die. He's on his deathbed surrounded by his disciples. One of the younger disciples who has more nerve than the others goes up to him and says, Rebbe, wanting to understand more, he says, Rebbe, you said life was like a barrel. And Rebbe looks at him and he says, so maybe it's not like a barrel. <laughs> See if I can draw some kind of point out of the story. <laughs> the point really is that no explanation, no kind of knowledge, nothing that anybody tells you, no words, is really what life is. Life is what it is, and the moment is what it is. And that's different. And you can find something and believe in it, but that's just the concept. Only to keep don't know mind, to allow yourself to be here really fully with, with what is. Beginner's mind is another expression. Walk when you walk, eat when you eat, sit, talk, do what you do. Just that simple. The middle path, the balance of mind, to be with things just as they are. And that's, all these are expressions of letting go, of past, of future, of who you are, only to be. Don't know mind, beginner's mind plop mind. <laughs> Nothing special. You know, at first in practice it seems like the Dharma is really special for people. Oh boy, it explains a lot of things that I didn't understand and things start to fit together. Even that specialness wears off after a while. You know, when I come and I teach after a while, I have the experience sometimes of, what am I saying all these words about? It's so simple, all this this chatter about nothing. Things are how they are. I'll read you something very special from the teachings of the Third Zen Patriarch. Very beautiful text. Talking about, from the absolute perspective, <coughs> truth of Dharma. Listen carefully. It says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. 
Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Live neither in the entanglement of outer things nor in inner feelings of emptiness. Be serene in the oneness of things and all erroneous views will disappear by themselves. If you try to stop activity to achieve stillness, your very effort fills you with activity. As long as you remain in one extreme or the other, you will never know this oneness. The more you talk and think about it, the further astray you wander from the truth. Stop talking and thinking, and there is nothing you will not be able to know. At the moment of inner enlightenment, there is a going beyond appearance and beyond emptiness. The changes that appear to occur in the empty world we call real only because of our ignorance. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. Don't know mind. Do not search for the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. The great way, the great understanding is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. So simple, the handful of leaves. Suffering in the end of suffering. Suffering is creating self, grasping, wanting to get to become anything. The end, only just to be. So simple. There's knowledge, all kinds. You want it, you can have it. All kinds of powers. They are not wisdom. Wisdom is being. Wisdom is just being here, as things are. Not acquiring, you can acquire knowledge or power. You can remember. Wisdom is nothing you can acquire. If you have it, that's not it. It's only this. And the elements change, the earth comes and goes, and the sun comes and goes, and people come and go. And you're just there in the midst of all of this change, which is happening. When you have wisdom, you don't have it, when it's there, then there arises special kind of knowledge, special kind of powers. Just come with it automatically, you get it free. The knowledge is equanimity. It's the understanding in that moment of things are just how they are, and they're rising, passing away, as they will. It's a perfect balance in the midst of all these changes in the universe, which will take place inevitably, whether you like it or not. That perfect understanding of equanimity, that's the passive aspect of wisdom. And that's balanced, on the other hand, by the active aspect of wisdom, which is loving-kindness, sympathetic joy, and compassion. Loving-kindness, we talked about a lot the other night, loving and acceptance of things how they are, compassion of seeing of also illusion and pain, and that force which motivates one to help and to act, uh, to act to relieve suffering in others as oneself. <coughs> sympathetic joy, which is the joy really that comes out of your deepening understanding, spiritual joy. <coughs> All these come automatically in each moment 
of balance of that handful of leaves of wisdom. Buddha said, when you see the Dharma, that's truly seeing the Buddha. Things become light, peaceful, really radiant. Radiant because there's no more grasping for things to be how they, how they might be or how you'd like them. Just here, at peace. And that's the essence of the teachings. There's nothing more you're going to get. And you go on all kinds of trips and journeys and your practice will evolve in all kinds of ways. There's nothing else. Only just to come back, to be with things exactly how they are. To close, I read from another very high and beautiful text, the Song of Mahamudra. This is a Tibetan text. <coughs> Mahamudra, listen carefully, it says a lot. Mahamudra is beyond all words and symbols, but for you, Naropa, earnest and loyal, must this be said. The void needs no reliance. Mahamudra, or the truth, rests on naught. Without making an effort, but remaining loose and natural, one can break the yoke, gaining liberation. If one sees naught when staring into space, if with the mind one then observes the mind, one destroys distinctions and attains Buddhahood. The clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home, nor do the distinctive thoughts floating through the mind. Once the self-mind is seen, discrimination stops. In space, shapes and colors form, but neither by black or white is space tinged. From the self-mind, all things emerge. The mind, by virtues and vices, is not stained. Do not with the body but relax. Shut firm the mouth and silent remain. Empty your mind and think of naught. Like a hollow bamboo, rest at ease your body. Giving not nor taking, put your mind at rest. Mahamudra is like a mind that clings to naught. Thus practicing, you will attain Buddhahood. The practice of mantra, instruction in sutras, precepts, teachings from the schools, will not bring realization of the innate truth. For if the mind, when filled with any desire, should seek a goal, it only hides the light. He who keeps precepts yet discriminates <coughs> betrays the spirit of true practice. Cease all activity, abandon all desire. Let thoughts rise and fall as they will like the ocean waves. One who never harms the non-abiding nor the principle of non-distinction upholds the precepts truly. He who abandons craving and clings not to this or that <coughs> perceives the real meaning in all of the teachings. The truth of what's beyond the mind, one should not give or take, <coughs> but remain natural, for Mahamudra is beyond all acceptance and all rejection. The supreme understanding transcends all this and that, all like and dislike. The supreme action embraces great resourcefulness without any attachment. The supreme accomplishment 
is to realize imminence without hope. To realize imminence only here without hope <coughs> or expectation. <coughs> At first, a yogi feels his mind is tumbling like a waterfall. In mid-course, like the Ganges, it flows on slow and gentle. In the end, it is a great vast ocean where the lights of son and mother merge into one. It's so simple, and yet we make things so complex, and that's okay. Even that complexity is included in what's so simple. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.